Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone in the United States and around the world. You know, we have listeners in 17 countries. Thank you so much, all of you. And hi, Mark, our sponsor. Thank you so much. And today, I am so excited. Here we go. First time in, I'd say, 10 years now. I have a co-host, co-anchor with me, Gerald Homie. Gerald, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Joyce. How are Thank you? Thank you for having me on the show. I'm, I'm great. I'm doing good, just full from our little holiday lunch we had. Yes. Well, it, you know, at Bender Consulting, we're all about holiday lunches, all lunches, <laughs> celebratory lunches. That's us at Bender Consulting Services. And by the way, Gerald is a senior recruiter in HR and chair of the Bender Lead On team. And, you know, he's like my son. I love him. And he's so talented. Guess how talented he is. That music you heard was composed by Gerald, the opening to the show. And at the break, that was composed by Gerald. So you can see how beautiful it is. And Gerald, I think you have a shout out. Yeah, I just want to give a big shout-out to, to Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, I know you're out there listening. Thank you for the beautiful letter. I always look forward to getting that every holiday, and I hang it up on my wall to show my team, and you know, we're going to keep leading on over here. Uh, we love you. You can tell we love you, Yoshiko. Um, and I will always mention you, Yoshiko. As you see, I have for years. And this show today, oh, it's, it's something that, you know, has grieved me. It still does. I'm so upset about it. Um, and thank God we have heroes in this country, uh, like the person on the show today, champions and advocates that are working to this school-to-prison uh trauma, tragedy in our country, and tragedy for people with disabilities. Leanne Davis is the Director of Criminal Justice Initiatives at the ARC, a person that has dedicated her life to working in this area. Leanne, welcome to the show. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. How about if we begin by you telling our listeners how you first became involved in the disability community? Sure. Um, so it really all started, um, I think, early on in life uh, when I myself had gone through some struggles. Uh, I don't have a disability uh, myself, but had been through some trauma as a child. And um, I think that really led me to going into social work. And during that time, I really got interested in our own jail overcrowding problem uh, where I live and w wanted to look at alternatives of how can we make the criminal justice system better for people in general. Um, and then I saw that the ARC of the United <coughs> States was um, looking to hire someone to really work on this issue, um, and that was thanks to the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed in 1990, and I was hired in 1994 to come on board and really try to start educating our law enforcement, um, our attorneys, and our victim service providers about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So that's kind of how it all started for me. And um, really where that passion lies and, and trying to create change in the system specifically for people with disabilities. You know, something I have to say, though, many people see problems. Like what amazes me is you saw this problem and you wanted to do something about it. Why do you think yes. that is? <laughs> well, why? Uh, do, do you know what I mean? Question. Many people see these problems, but they don't say, hey, I'm going to do something about this. 
You know what? That's a great question, Joyce. I, I think it's somewhat that I wanted to fix my own problem. You know, I think when you go through something traumatic, um, you look for solutions and you try to, you, it's kind of like you try to figure out the world, right? And, and there was just something that I felt like there's something I have to offer. There's something that I need to give to this to create something better out of a really bad situation. And I, I'm telling you, I was absolutely floored when I came into the ARC and I realized how people with intellectual and developmental disabilities were completely invisible when it came to criminal justice issues. And I did have really strong mentors early on to help kind of unveil that for me. And I think all of that together was what set me out on this journey, which has now been 25 years of the ARC, to really uncover these issues and bring light to that to them and try to bring more attention, um, funding, support, research, all to this area for justice for people with disabilities. Well, you know, Leanne, anyone that's been through trauma such as you, it is a disability. Mm -hmm. But what I believe is disability makes you stronger. That's what I believe. And obviously, even Mm -hmm. with that trauma, look what you did, such courage. Um, and you really did something. Hey, Gerald, would you agree with what I said that sometimes when people go through something, they end up making a decision, hey, I want to work in that area like you. That happened to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened with me. You know, I learned firsthand going through, you know, the education system with learning disabilities about, you know, the challenges that you face dealing with that and the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the toll that it takes on you. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have overcome a lot of the, you know, institutionalized things that, you know, change the way people with learning disabilities view themselves, that things that you go through within the system and been able to come out of that. And, you know, because of that, I feel like, you know, I'm equipped because I've been through that mm-hmm. to help other people go through that same thing and, you know, come out on the positive end of it, um, you know, that to, to share that personal experience with people. And, you know, the more you work in it, the more you learn how to help people with that. And it's, it's, it's very exciting to, to help with that, isn't it, Leanne? And, you know, Leanne, yeah. uh, I know you know what can happen to because uh, we've talked about this, people with learning disabilities. But just as an example, Gerald, uh, tell everyone how in school the lack of understanding with your learning disability. How did you yeah. see that? And so I have uh, dysgraphia was, was the diagnosis I gained, and no one had heard of dysgraphia before in the school that I went to when I gained the diagnosis. So, you know, they couldn't see a disability with me, so they decided that, you know, the doctors just made something up and there was nothing real going on and, you know, they that I was just a lazy kid and, you know, they were going to get me in line by, you know, making me work harder or fix me, you know, whatever their, their intentions were. And they would have me do all these kind of strange things um, instead of accommodating my disability to try to just get me to do it like everyone else. Um, mm-hmm. And really, you know, I was somebody who, you know, I really cared a lot about working hard in school. And, you know, a lot of the teachers didn't see that, you know, when I was at home, you know, one of the things that dysgraphia affects is your ability to write. It's very similar to dyslexia, but it affects, um, you know, there's a disconnect between, you know, your creation process and in your mind with language and the act of writing out that language. It's like it categorizes, you know, written language almost like drawings. So when I write, it's like I'm individually drawing every letter as opposed to just communicating. So there's uh, extra Mm -hmm. steps that I go through. And because of that, too, the uh, the fine motor skills are affected by this, too. So my handwriting is horribly illegible. Um, So when I was young, they... uh, would give me raised line paper and told me to write on that and that'll fix it. Well, I would I'd go home and write, you know, my papers 
over and over and over again. My sister would mm-hmm. stay up with me, and I'd be up into the wee hours of the night as a you know fifth grader trying mm-hmm. to get this legible because I knew if I turned it in illegible, they would downgrade me for poor handwriting. Um, but uh, you know, it wasn't until really high school where I started to to see a difference. You know, I would have a lot. I had a really bad time with not really being accommodated appropriately. And um, because of that, you know, I had some really poor self-esteem issues because I didn't really understand, mm-hmm. um, you know, what was going on. I didn't really get it. And the bullies that would call me names and you know, the teachers that treated me like I was different, like something was wrong, you know, I, I took that into heart. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I got in high school, I got I had one teacher in high school, finally, that was incredibly accommodating, really did everything to provide my accommodations because, well, he had a disability, too, so, you know, he understood. And uh, all of a sudden, I was really successful in English class, you know, the most difficult class for me. And I was getting straight A's as opposed to all these other years before, and I could see that Mm -hmm. the key was, you know, somebody doing the right thing. And because of that, I got, I took that and learned, to, did some research, understood my disability better, and figured out what was working with my accommodations finally. And now I had something I could use to, you know, progress things. But I, I went through a lot of different stuff, you know, growing up dealing with that that made it really hard. And Leanne, I bet you're familiar with all this, right? Yes, I mean, I think what really stands out about your story um, is just that lack of accommodations, and um, and and what really has bothered me about sometimes how we um, respond to either trauma or someone who learns differently, um, someone who writes differently, whatever you want to call it, um, we respond very negatively instead of seeing it as a strength. How do we, you know, um, I, as a social worker, you learn uh, how to reframe things. You know, I learned that early on when I was going to college. And ever since then, I've thought about how, how often in our society, we don't work to reframe. We just sometimes penalize. Um, and, and so what makes me think of what you just said is the importance of looking at things differently. And Joyce, how you said at the beginning, um, when trauma or disability or things occur in our lives, it's that reframing process of saying, you know, how can society change um, so that we can all feel welcomed a part of this and all have an equal chance to be a part of life. And so um, it def- definitely does can create um, something in you to make you stronger and at the same time, you want to make sure that you're not the only one being able to benefit from that strength. And so I think that's why we're probably all on the same, um, on the same show right now together, because we're all sort of like-minded in that way. Right, because Definitely. I have epilepsy and I'm hard of hearing, you know, Gerald, dysgraphia. It's, we all have yeah. gone through this. And we are also all advocating so that everyone has quality of life. Um, And so everyone knows, tell us what you do for the ARC uh, and what is the size of the ARC? What are some of the main programs? Sure. So for those who are new to the ARC, I'll give you a quick um, overview of who we are and what we do. So our mission is really to promote and protect the human rights of people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities and we really want to work towards supporting their inclusion and full particip- participation in the community throughout their lives. And for those who don't know, we are the oldest and largest national nonprofit that support people with intellectual and developmental disability. And for those new to that term, um, some of the diagnoses that you may be familiar with are autism, uh, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and fragile X syndrome. But that's just a a small sample of people that can be affected by intellectual and developmental disabilities. There's hundreds of diagnoses, and some people are affected that don't have a specific diagnosis at all, 
And we do see those people in the criminal justice system, which can make it that much difficult to serve those individuals. Um, the ARC itself was funded in 1950, so we turned 70 in 2020, which is very exciting. Um, but it was founded by parents who wanted their children with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities to be able to learn, work, live, and play as full members in their communities rather than going in, into institutions, which is what was happening back then. Um, and over the past 70 years, these families and now people with disabilities and their families are working together to build these programs and systems that really allow people with intellectual and developmental disability to have that inclusion. And so at this point, we have over 620 chapters throughout the country, and we provide all kinds of supports related to education and healthcare, um, future planning, employment um, is a big one. And we really work uh, to support our chapter network to provide those services and supports in their local communities. We have um, chapters in 47 states and in the District of Columbia, and we serve more than 1 million people with IDD each year. Um, so we're very busy. <laughs> Our national office is in D.C., although I do work from a home office in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, and I've been working from here for many years. Uh, I started with the ARC back when they were in Arlington, Texas, where I live, um, but that was a few years ago, 25 years ago, so um, I've been able to continue working through different grants, always with a focus on criminal justice and how we can keep a focus on this topic uh, within the disability and the criminal justice profession. So um, that's been an uphill battle, but that's really been my focus throughout the years working with the ARC. And you've been doing that for a very long time. Yes, and it's not been easy because uh, the funding is not necessarily there. It does. It's not like in some fields like education, for example, where you can have some research to back up what you're saying about the problems in the field. Um, and so it's almost like we have to start from scratch and start with very basic information to tell funders and the world at large, you know, look at this problem. This is a real problem. Even though you're not hearing about it every day, you know, people with these types of disabilities are in the system and are often not being heard from. Um, and so we've really worked to try to raise awareness of this issue, but also try to bring some um, support and funding that would help create better research uh, to help us have more numbers on how many people are affected and, you know, what, what kinds of interventions or what kinds of training do we need? How do we know what's working and all of those kinds of questions? All right. And Gerald, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So uh, with all that's going on, I want, you know, everyone to understand a little bit more about this. Can you talk a little bit about, um, the many reasons that there is this problem from school, this pipeline from school to prison to folks with these disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about what the, the factors are that are contributing to that? Yeah, and and I will say from at the beginning that you know I don't my expertise is not is not specifically on this issue. I mean there are people that are really focused just on this. But as the director of the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability here at the ARC, my focus is very broad in looking at a number of issues affecting people with IDD who are in the system. But um, in 2015, our center uh, published a white paper on juvenile justice issues, and that's called Justice Involved Youth with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, a Call to Action for the Juvenile Justice Community. And in that, we were able to work with um, different experts um, um, and people with disabilities to bring together a paper that would look at specific issues around juvenile justice. And, of course, one of the things that came up is the school-to-prison pipeline. And for those who may not be familiar with what exactly that means, I'll just give a brief definition, but it's basically used to describe this national trend of school policies and practices that force students, and especially it's those that are most at risk, 
out of the classrooms and into the juvenile or criminal justice system. And this has been a real problem, um, and it's counterproductive to the goals of education system uh, because it removes students from the classroom, and it's become a common and widespread disciplinary practice. And so some of the issues um, that we're really concerned about is one of them is the zero-tolerance policies, and what this does is it imposes very severe consequences um, for example, suspic- uh, suspension and expulsion for very specific conducts. And, and it doesn't really look at the particular circumstances surrounding the student. So you can imagine that this one-size-fits-all approach to disciplining students is really not working out for people with disabilities. Um, and we see this happen in the criminal justice system as well, where a student may be doing something that is, that is misread, um, a behavior that could be misread, and that that could lead to, um, you know, issues at school, and then that could lead to criminal justice system issues as well. And a second thing that we've seen is just this general over-policing within schools. So there's been really a dramatic increase of police presence on school campuses throughout the country, um, and we've seen the rise of school resource officers as well. And The problem is if we're not training these officers to understand disability, then we're going to see that rise in um, people going into our criminal justice system through the juvenile justice system. And we know that studies show that placement of police officers in schools is more likely to actually escalate the non-serious or low-level incidents into actual criminal acts. And this leads to more school-based arrests and referrals to law enforcement. So these are some of the issues um, that was brought out in our white paper. And we've actually worked with NASRO, which is the National Association of School Resource Officers, to try to kind of start at the national level and having these conversations and asking about the type of training that they provide to officers nationally so that they can start having a better understanding of, um, you know, identifying if a student may have a disability, knowing how to work with individuals, having more just of a sensitivity around these issues so that, so that these students aren't just ending up in our criminal justice system. Wow. So that, just that so is... our listeners understand that, um, go ahead, Gerald. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Joyce. You're fine. I was just going to say, so just so I get that, you're meaning... Yeah. Let's just say you're in high school um, and you have, since I have epilepsy, I'll use this as an example. There are certain types of epilepsy, like a complex partial seizure, that if mm-hmm. that you may look combative. And that if, mm-hmm. for example, one of these police officers in the school would approach you, you could actually hit the person. And right. then... What happens next? Are they then not just suspended but sent to uh, some juvenile court, or what happens? Right. Well, that could, you know, either and or both. Um, Yes, they could be suspended, and that's a concern because then people, uh, the student is missing school. And, um, and if the person goes in directly into um, the court system, then there are specific issues there because um, the, the court system is not really set up for people with disabilities either. And we're concerned about the level of accommodations that the student or an adult may be able to access within the court system too. Um, so at each point of the system, something that we developed within um, the National Center on Criminal Justice um, and Disability is called our Pathways to Justice Training. And we felt it was really important to look at each, um, each stage in the criminal justice system and think about where accommodations are needed. So if it's a victim of a crime or if it's someone who's a suspect of a crime, either way, um, you go through um, each step of the system and think through what accommodations does this person need. And what's exciting about that process is we're doing that throughout the country 
uh, with disability response teams that we're creating. So we go to a community and we work with them to create this team who then helps us put on this training in their community. And we have to have on that team a law enforcement officer, an attorney, a victim service provider, a person with a disability, and a disability advocate. And there's usually a few more than that. But um, we, we work within that team to really address issues just like this. And say, for example, in um, Little Town, Colorado, <laughs> you know, they're having issues around people, students with disabilities um, um, being expelled. Uh, that's one issue that we would address with our disability response teams and really trying to say what are the specific issues your community is facing uh, around this and how can we begin to brainstorm ideas to, um, to get to a better solution. So, um, so the, the school-to-prison pipeline is one that w- where we've seen from the National Center's perspective is that there's just this lack of training, too, and understanding among, among law enforcement and school resource officers on this topic. And I know that some dis- in the disability community feel like we should not have any school resource officers, period. Um, and that's been another thing that's been discussed. Why, did, why do we even have them in our schools? Um, and is there a better alternative to that? Because that in and of itself can set up a system where people and students are automatically being, you know, seen as potential criminals. Um, and I'm sure you've seen some of the stories come on national media around people with disabilities being handcuffed at school. And um, I know there was a recent one around a, a person with autism being handcuffed and being you know, not really um, dealt with in a nice way. So these are, and these are impacting, these situations impact that person for the rest of their life and, and how they see police officers and how they are able to trust or not trust people in uniform in the future. So these are real concerns that we're trying to, again, reframe this issue and move the conversation into um the criminal justice system and professionals working in that system to have a much more deep, I don't know if I want to say deeper understanding of disability, but practical and honest understanding of disability. Um, And, you know, the system often isn't set up that way. It's black or white, you know, it's right or it's wrong. And this can be really hard because uh, typically in the criminal justice system, things are very structured um, and we're trying to say, that you have to understand that a person is not just black or white. That this situation has different um, different things within it that we have to take into consideration. And after you kind of provide these scenarios, because we use quite a few scenarios in our training, it does tend to help officers and others in the system, especially since we have people with disabilities providing that training as well, have a much better understanding of what we're talking about. But without that, um, without that more global understanding, it's real hard for people working within the system to really understand that. Oh, so true. And you know, um, of course, we're going to get ready now to go to our news break, which we have on the half hour, uh, Advocacy Matters. And I just want to say before... Perry Jude Radisic comes on. Boy, talk about someone that knows this problem inside mm. and out. Uh, Perry Jude, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks, Joyce, and thanks for uh, exploring this topic. It's so important. Oh, it is. I know it is. Um, and I know you know it. Uh, but I know you have special news for us today. Uh, we do here on Advocacy Matters, and uh, we visited this issue before. It's called Electronic Visit Verification, and it was part of the 21st Century Cures Act, and it, that the law, the federal law, mandated that all states use electronic visit verification for Medicaid services, both for personal care and home health services, and they had different start dates, and the current start date for full implementation of personal care services is January 1st, 2020. It's right around the corner, Joyce, but uh, some states are having 
a, a slow time getting started for various reasons. And so if a state could demonstrate they made a good faith effort to comply but encountered delays, the state could request a one-year delay to that full implementation uh, and not be able to meet that January 1st, 2020 implementation deadline. So Pennsylvania is one of those states that applied for a good faith effort exemption through the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. That deadline for that exemption application was November 30th. I know Pennsylvania applied. Other states have applied as well. On our website at disabilityrightspa.org, we have a list under our Advocacy Matters segment. We have a link to the list at CMS of all of the states that have applied for the good faith effort exemption and the status of that request. So if, if you're interested to know what your state has done, uh, some states I know have already fully implemented electronic visit verification. Some states like Pennsylvania are asking for a one-year extension uh, before they fully implement uh, electronic visit verification. So again, go to our website, uh, click on uh, today's segment of Advocacy Matters, and see what your state has done in terms of uh, asking for that good faith effort exemption. Uh, so if, if here's the deal, though. If the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services fails to approve that good faith effort exemption, or if, they don't, uh, if Pennsylvania, for example, doesn't receive approval by January 1st, the deal is we have to go ahead and implement electronic visit verification by January 1st. So I know we've talked about this before, but what is electronic verification? And that requires an individual to use an advice uh, to uh, allow providers to log six items electronically uh, instead of using paper verification for their home care service. And that would be the type of service, the name of the individual receiving the service, the name of the person providing the service, the date of the service, the start end time of the service, and where that service is happening, like the location of the service. Now, uh, many of us in the disability community have expressed concerns about electronic verifi visit verification. And we're not opposing the need uh, to streamline or automate uh, timesheets for direct care workers. We appreciate that need for that higher level of accountability, but one concern is certainly the cost for the community. So what if people don't have a device or a cell phone? Uh, the other concern is that GPS tracking, because this will follow the person around, so there's a privacy issue involved. And, and we have lots of information, again, about this. Advocacy matters, and it's important for us to understand electronic visit verification and what your state is doing about it. So visit disabilityrightspa.org, click on the links to this show, and what is happening uh, with any extensions of time for your state uh, or whether your state is fully implementing visit, uh, electronic visit verification. So that's oh, our latest news, Joyce. Yeah. Hey, Perry, thank you so much because you know what I would, when you were talking, I was thinking, and what about people in poverty, people that don't have the smartphone or any way to do this electronically or have a significant learning disability, you know, unable to utilize that anyway? I mean, that that is really... That is really bad. So you know what, listeners, go to that website. You got to go to that website, disabilityrightspa.org, and uh, go to Advocacy Matters on the website. Read everything about it. And by the way, I'm going to be saying this throughout the next several months, but you know, Perry Jude Radisic does so much for this country, for people with disabilities, and, and does such a great job for this radio show. Please make a donation. I don't care if it's $5. I don't care what it is, but look at the knowledge she's providing to us. So Perry Jude, thank you so very much, and we'll look forward to having you on soon. Hey, thanks, Joyce. Take care. 
so great to have this uh, news break because really a lot of people don't know what's going on. So that's why I'm so happy to have her on with us. And you know what, Leanne, I got to say something. I'll never forget when I called you and said, where do we start on trying to solve this? And you said, don't ask because it's everywhere. It's so big. (laughs) And it is. It's so big that you yeah. almost don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many things, so many problems that, but we got to start somewhere. And a good way to start is that training you t- that you talked about. Um, I mean, and thinking about the person handcuffed. Oh my God, we're just mm-hmm. on our on our way to training people to feel like victims and criminals, uh, and afraid and afraid of police officers. That's right. Um, I mean, what what you said is so true. Uh, and by the way, are there any national programs that work together with you on this issue? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, I, I didn't really explain how the center got started, but, you know, I'd been working in the field for a while until it was in 2013 that we got a grant through the Bureau of Justice Assistance which is within the Department of Justice, to really start this national center. And um, I had written a paper for, back then, the President's Committee on Mental Retardation. That's how long ago that was. Um, And envisioned with my mentor, Bob Persky, having a national center where we could house sort of, you know, all of this information. So we could start looking at where do we start, right? And we could start thinking about... um, you know, what partners do we need? How do we start really collaborating around this issue and um, thinking through long-term solutions, not just give me one-year grant and we're done, because <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> and so through that, um, in 2013, I had already, you know, been working with different organizations throughout the years, and I think we ended up with 20 support letters for that grant because it was like the perfect timing for all of this to come together. There was a, there was actually a shooting, um, uh, not a shooting. It was a person um, in Maryland who was asphyxiated because um, Ethan Saylor is his name, and some of the listeners may have heard of him here in the U.S. because the story was pretty widespread. But it was a couple of off-duty police officers who... Um, um, responded to an issue of someone not wanting to pay for a second showing of a movie. And that ended up in this person with Down syndrome being asphyxiated when the officers took him down. And the mother was on her way, and there was someone there saying, please wait, the mother is on the way. Um, so with all of that, um, around that same time, we got funded to start this national center. And since that time, And currently, we're working with organizations like National Disability Rights Network, um, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, which is the largest uh, policing organization in the U.S. Um, We're also working with um, victims' organizations like the the National Sexual Violence Resource Center around um, educating society about the high rate of victimization among this population as well. So there's there's really quite a long list of organizations we work with because we want to remain very broad in our approach so that we are touching as many places um, in this issue that we can because, again, I go back to the issue that this population specifically seems to be completely invisible when it comes to ensuring inclusive justice for all people. And so we want to make sure that we get into as many different doors and um, professional groups as we possibly can to educate about this issue. And oh, my really... God. No, wait. I, wait. I just have to understand one thing. Why did you say, what did, what did this young man do that caused the police officer? Mm. What did he do? He wanted to stay for a second showing of Zero Dark Thirty. Um, and so he went back into the movie theater to watch it. And the, the manager of the movie theater told some off-duty police officers who were there. And so they went in to tell him to he had to pay for the second showing. That's how it happened. And 
that was the impetus of what ended up with him dying. Oh, I, oh, Gerald, I, I'm sure you are also incensed hearing that. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean it's it's a, what what world is that okay for that to lead to? You know that mm-hmm. that end. You know, and it comes down to just like you said. You know this this lack of education, this lack of understanding of this group of people. And, you know, we, we see that as, a, as really a, a, a systemic problem in our society of, you know, this lack of understanding of disability, what it is, um, what it means, you know, and, you know, how to, to look at it. You know, people like to, who are outside of that picture and don't have personal understanding like to, you know, often make the decision for us with disabilities of how to handle that, and that often is, you know, the source of those problems is folks who don't have the education on the the issue is, you know, often making the decisions on how to handle it, whether it be how to handle somebody, you know, who won't exit a movie theater, uh, or how to handle, you know, a key law that is being written, uh, or how to teach a student, or how, who to pick when you're hiring, and it's just uh, it's so problematic. I, I can imagine, you know, looking deeper into, you know, this issue, you can even probably find other correlations to, you know, the imprisonment system for folks with disabilities, not even just while you're in school mm-hmm. with, you know, behavior that happens there, but to, you know, uh, folks that, you know, because of not receiving, you know, the proper education that they need for they're the way they learn, not having good grades and then not being able to, you know, go into college or having to drop out of high school and that leading to, you know, being in an environment where the, you have more opportunity to choose crime uh, and, you know, things right. like that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there's a lot even within the system, like I had heard about, you know, there are situations where folks are, you know, uh, coerced false into confessing for crimes that you know how you face these specific mm-hmm. issues. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Yes, and in fact, the whole issue around coerced confessions was really um, a big topic topic when I started at the ARC because back then we didn't have the legislation um, saying that you couldn't um, execute people with intellectual and intellectual disabilities. So since I've been at the ARC, that's changed. But when I first came to the ARC in 1994, that was a big issue of, um, of um, people with intellectual disability ending up in really bad situations like death row because they were coerced into giving confessions. Oh, and, my um, gosh. That, and I, I don't know if either of you know Bob Persky, um, but I had the privilege and honor of meeting him almost day one on the job. And he was the one person, um, really, who poured into me all of his knowledge and understanding on this issue. And um, he wrote books on this topic, and he, he wrote a couple of books on it. He'd been in the disability field for many years as an advocate and he was at one point an executive director of one of the art chapters, um, but really this was like kind of like his second career was just focused on this issue of people with intellectual disabilities getting involved in the criminal justice system and ending up on death row. And one of the persons that he wrote about is Johnny Lee Wilson, and that was the case um, where he was um, ended up convicted of murder of a 79-year-old woman. In, um, it was in Aurora, Missouri, and that was back in 1986. And you, there was actually a video made by Temple University about this person's story, and I just can remember how clear it was that he was being led to say things. And it was, it was like they were spoon-feeding it, really, um, his, quote, confession, and sadly, it wasn't until 1995 that he was eventually pardoned when someone else confessed to it. Um, but it's wow. these kinds of 
really clear, <laughs> like that's obviously coerced, that, um, that the system does not, again, does not recognize how disability could be playing a role in these issues. And there's so many other ways. It's not just go in and coerce confessions, but let's look at the other side of it. Say someone was, um, was raped and it was by someone who's well-known in the community. Well, who do you think they're going to believe? Someone with an intellectual disability who may have a hard time explaining what happened? Or are they more likely to side on someone who it looks like they could never do that crime, right? So, I mean, there's so many different ways that people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities are at a disadvantage in a system that doesn't provide them with the, the accommodations they need to truly, um, to truly be able to communicate and say what happened to them or to not be coerced into saying something that they didn't do. So either way, you know, this is a, a really big issue. And I'm telling you, that's what opened my eyes because I worked on a death penalty case here in Texas with some attorneys because I wanted to see for myself what happened. And I could not believe just the insensitivity of the jury to even begin to open their mind to understand how an intellectual disability played a role in this case because they just had death penalty on the mind, right? Um, it was just an eye-opening experience, and I thought, you know, there's just not enough people talking about this, and I'm not going to ever stop talking about it now that it's out there and I see, you know, how just the level of injustice that is going on in the lives of these people. Yeah. Well, it is. Good to it, we have champions like you talking about it all the time because definitely need more of it. Yeah, we need a lot more of it. And you know, if you're listening to this, this is another group I would encourage you to get behind. If someone would want to make a donation specifically about this at the ARC, how do you do that? Well, you can go to our um, to our website, and we've got our main website. It's www.thearc.org, and from there you can um, look up our different programs. And we've got one just on criminal justice. So, um, you know that that donation will go straight to our criminal justice work. If you go to our website, you can donate there. And, um, and we definitely are using every penny we can <laughs> to continue this work. Uh, again, it, it doesn't seem to get easier to find the funding for this, but, you know, nothing is going to der- derail us in that mission. And I did want to mention, I don't want it to be all dark and gloomy because there is hope out there for this issue. And one of the exciting things that we've been working on is what's called our Justice Works um, initiative, and that's bringing together um, both our Pathways to Justice training that we offer with this other program that was started by a, a police officer who's now retired so that he can do this work full-time. He's a police officer named Travis Akins, and he has a son with disabilities. And um, we brought our two programs together to not only help educate law enforcement about people with disabilities, but also help people with disabilities get jobs. So we're looking at employment and justice issues all at the same time. And we've been able to do that in four different sites, thanks to the Kessler Foundation, who's provided funding, sort of like seed money for this. And our next one is in San Diego next week. And um, then we've got one more, and we'll wrap that project up, and we're going to continue to look for funding to really – to really get this program throughout the country. And what's so exciting about it is that, you know, you can only train so much by just training. And even case scenarios are great. But we want officers to really um, experience people with disabilities for themselves and so that they'll feel more comfortable around people that maybe they've never had a person with a disability in their family. You know, they've never experienced that. And what this program does is bring in about about 15 cadets, to the into the police stations, and um, it's people with disabilities, and they get to work alongside police officers. And not only does this help increase the confidence of people with disabilities, but it helps the um, officers just have 
you know, regular one-on-one time with people with disabilities, not in a situation where they may have to arrest them or where they take a report due to victimization, but just as an opportunity to get to know one another, work alongside each other. And the goal is that afterwards, people with disabilities are um, have an opportunity to have jobs in the community. And so far, there's been a 95% rate of um, success with that, of people being employed after going through this program. So we're looking at that as a, as a real kind of game changer in how, in how we're addressing this challenging situation. You know, not get the officers to really understand disability and also help people with disabilities be more included in our community, especially when, when it comes to employment. And the real dream is to see them employed at the police stations at, you know, the different jobs within the cities and get open a new door of employment for people with disabilities as well. So I thought that, Joyce, that would be one that you'd be really excited to hear about. Oh, that is awesome. It's always great when you hear something positive about all of this. (laughs) Now, uh, Leanne, I'm going to tell you what, this is so important to me. And this show went so quickly. Uh, We're almost at the end. I want to tell you, I'd like to have you on again next year uh, because the only way I know to make an impact is for people to continue hearing about this. Uh, And your Mm -hmm. advocacy is so important. So if you don't mind, I'm going to have you back on again. Oh, I would absolutely love it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. And thanks to both of you for... um, you know, just having an, an open heart and an open mind about this. It's so critically important, and we need as many people as we can get um, to, to be able to do whatever they can, you know, to make a change in this. Um, I, my message is always that we've got to create a world where justice is truly inclusive for all people um, and to think about what our role is in that vision. And, and, I, and I know that everyone listening um, can do something about that. So, you know, if you look up our website at the ARC that I said earlier um, and go to Criminal Justice Issues and find our National Center, we'd be happy to find a way to help you find that connection for you. And I'm telling you, it's such a great feeling and um, such a wonderful experience to know that we're able to make change. Um, and this is for people with disabilities in all walks of life, you know, many who have been traumatized. Um, and have never been able to talk about it, and some who end up sitting in a prison cell. Um, well, and these are exactly you, the, the kind of people you, that we've got you, to... Right. You are making a difference. You are, and I am definitely having you back on. I have so enjoyed this, and I know Gerald has also. I end every show with a quote, and this is... I'm sure heard everywhere, but he who opens a school door closes a prison, said Victor Mm -hmm. Hugo. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Don't miss hearing the great musician Scott Mulvihill. Talk to you then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.